Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. I'm delighted to welcome you to this very special event with one of Britain's foremost contemporary artists, Maggie Hamling. She's well known for her compelling portraits, paintings of the sea and her celebrated public sculpture, including a conversation with Oscar Wilde in London and Scallop on Aldborough Beach. Her work is represented in major British collections, including the British Museum, the National Gallery, National Portrait Gallery, V&A, and Tate. Following her recent retrospective, Maggie Hambling Touch works on paper at the British Museum. Her exhibition, Edge, is at Marlborough Fine Art until the 13th of April and presents a new series of paintings and sculpture. So I'll now like to hand over to the RA's artistic director, Tim Marlowe, who'll be discussing the exhibition and more with Maggie Hambling. Thank you. Maggie, you always get a very lustrous crowd. It's very good to see um, Knights of the Realm here. seats. Yeah. Um, we're going to work through the show in the order that you've presented it in the catalogue. This is um, your idea, but obviously we'll, we'll go tangentially off when we need to. Um, we're going to try and create time to have questions from the floor, but we're capable of dealing with anarchy enough if people start interjecting in the middle to decide whether they'll take those not. questions or not. Okay. Um, there are subgroups and themes in the exhibition, Edge. I mean, you could say environmentalism, politics, portraiture, um, and so on. And some of the familiar tropes of your career, aesthetics, ugliness, beauty, mortality, process, that's all there. But I am struck by the fact that the first body of work that we're going to look at and that hits the viewer squarely between the eyes is a series of works entitled Aleppo, one, two, three, four. And this is an explicitly political dimension. Now, you have had political references in the past, I mean, the Gulf War, but there is often seen as a kind of disconnect in contemporary art between contemporary politics and art itself. Is this something that just presented itself to you, or is it something you have to think about critically as to whether or not it's a subject you can deal with? I'm very simple, Tim. I paint what moves me. And, uh, you know, we all sit there watching uh, horrors not the worst, because we're not shown the worst, but the horrors of war passing across the 10 o'clock news and the rest of it, and we sit there in a sort of passive way, and uh, it becomes a bland, it's sort of we're numbed by all of this because we're so used to it, and we're in the sort of comfort of our own homes and the rest of it. But I can only say that I paint what moves me, and the situation in Aleppo was, uh, and probably still is, um, something that moves me. And when I, when I was at the Slade, uh, a friend of mine was uh, writing a book. Whether she ever wrote it or not, I don't know, but the title was very good. The title was Peace, the Impossible Concept, which is a very good title because the moment one war is over, at least half a dozen others have started. So this is the first of the Aleppo paintings. Shall we go on? We about, it's about the, 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 the fall, the destroying the, of this city. Well... I wanted to ask you about relationship. I mean, you paint what moves you. You talk about the, well, it's not my phrase, not yours, image bombardment from the news and so on. I mean, I think that the, partly there is this visceral immediacy of seeing things on television, and in another way, there's a total detachment from that. Fleeting images must be generated. Images must be in your mind. And yet I get the feeling that it's process that takes over. Where do you start an image like this? Is the image there in your mind that you work away from, or do you start simply with the stuff of paint and find yourself working towards a kind of image, even though it's in flux? Well, I think, uh, you know, 
my very first teacher at school said a subject chooses you, you don't choose the subject, okay? So when something enters me, if you like, it's probably all quite sexual. Um, and, you know, it's going on at night, it's going on in the morning, it's going on all the time. And then, with luck, the painting paints itself. It just begins and paints itself. I mean, this was a very quick painting. Um, some take longer and some are very quick. And this was, it just happened. And then, of course, you, I'm dealing with that sexy old stuff of oil paint. And which is alive itself. And I mean, I do think in great painting, um, which is different from photography and different from film, you can stand in front of a great painting, a Rothko, a Van Gogh, a, a Rembrandt, and it can be as if that, and I feel it particularly with Cy Twombly, as if that painting is happening in front of you. That's to me what oil paint can do, as if the, sub the, thing, the thing is being made in front of you as you look at it, which is not something that can happen in any other medium. So, in fact, the process takes over. You become almost yeah, detached. Yeah. The, I, I know that commentators and historians get very hung up about sourcing. And I always felt, felt that at the end of Bacon's life, Francis Bacon's life, when it was revealed that he had used photographic sources, I thought kind of felt so what? But I thought it was more interesting that he denied ever having used that kind of um, source. But in your studio, which I haven't been to, are there images of conflict, for example, when you're painting this pinned up on the wall, or is that completely anathema to the way that you would work? You just simply start with the blank canvas and the stuff of paint. Anathema. No photographs. Not guilty. Anathema. No preparatory drawings, you no. start. Yep. When you look at this work, for example, can you remember where you started? No, I can't, Tim. <laughs> Christ. And, what a question. And, and where you finished? No. And when do, do you... Do you want to know how to do it? Am I here to give you a lesson? This is, this is the Royal Academy. We're, we're always a how-to guide as well as a cultural analysis. Um, and, uh, and, and that again, that question, which I know I'm going to get short shrift on, but I'm going to ask it because I'm foolhardy. Um, is there something consistently there, even if it's difficult to explain, when a work's finished? Or is each work so singular, actually, you only know work by work? I mean, I just wonder the when classic, you get to the, the point. The classic question. Yes, it is. How do you know when the bugger's finished? I know, I know. Well, uh, David Hockney says it's when he gets bored, so he stops the painting. Um, one hopes for divine intervention, that the painting will stop itself. But the best answer I've ever come across was the answer Andy Warhol gave when asked how he knew when a work was finished. Do you know what he said? Uh, no. Well, you should, you know, you should. <laughs> um, however, as Tim doesn't know, I will... Uh, when Andy Warhol was asked how he knew when a work was finished, he said, when it's sold. <laughs> and, and actually, that is the best answer. Because... <laughs> Because then it's gone, it's gone. You can't fiddle around with it again, you know? It's gone, gone. And you've got some money. It's a good answer. It is. Uh, Francis Bacon used to say, when, I need a, when, I, when I've run out of money and I need more to drink, I'd make another painting, which is a different kind of answer, I suppose. Um, so when you see your works hanging on the wall at the Marlborough now or in the past, or when you encounter works you've made decades ago, do you ever feel the urge to play with them, amend them, update them. I mean, some artists still do. Ben Nicholson used to go into the Tate and start 
I mean, wanting to touch work up and was, you know, to be told by the guards that even though he'd made it, it, it wasn't his to do anymore. But do you ever feel that or you, you let go? I mean, it, you're you pragmatic. Have to let, you have to let go, have to let go. And uh, I did destroy quite a lot of work. So that's gone. <laughs> I mean, if it goes out of the studio, I reckon it's sort of all right. That, I mean, when you say you did destroy, you mean it's a regular thing that you... So one of the things about... And risk is a hell of an overstated work, I think, in, in the creative world. I mean, yeah, maybe, I mean, people do take risks, but it's not quite the same as the subject matter you're dealing with here. But does it permit you to try and experiment and to actually push in places you wouldn't necessarily do in the knowledge that often you will destroy a work if it doesn't work? Well, I think every painting has to be an experiment. Otherwise, there's not a lot of point in doing it. You know, and you become mannered and, and all the rest of it. And so, I mean, in, I think every time you address yourself to a piece of paper to make a drawing, which is why I'm so against the word sketch, which sounds casual, um, you know, you're addressing yourself to that bit of space, however tiny it may be, and it has to be an experiment. But Shall we move on to the next one, Tim? Yeah, I said I was going to drive it on, but it's good. You well, can I keep can tell this. you. Thank you, you can. Um, the, the, this is the... Last. No, 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 no. One before you missed one. Now. I have. I was. I was. Well, I was now trying to drive it on and say, look. So this and then this. Uh, are they, the what about that big one? All right. Yeah. Why don't you just tell me when you want me to move it on, rather than let me move it on? What I was going to do was get to the end of the series and then talk to you about when the notion of the series was complete. I mean, is that to do with deadlines and times, or do you feel the Aleppo series has been played out perfectly? adequately in you know, the four or five I don't know. Out. I don't know if another Aleppo painting will happen. But it could still happen. It even could though still it's... happen, yeah. Can we move on? Unless no. All right. Go back to that big yellow one. Right, go on. Thank you. Right. What would you like to say about the big yellow painting? <laughs> well, I would like to say that on this screen, this painting is about, I don't know, a third the size of, it, how it, of, of in reality. It's the biggest... Uh, Aleppo painting, and um, you can't really see uh, on this slide, but I mean, paintings take a time to look at, don't they? You, yes. have to, you have to give them time, allow them to speak to you. Good paintings do, certainly. And, you know, then, and people sort of may take a little time to discover the little figures up in the top left-hand corner on those collapsing buildings, and this, this thing of discovering things in them, I think, is, is very important. How conscious are those images? I mean, it, it, it strikes me hearing you talk about the process taking over, whether you're trying to, whether those images slowly reveal themselves or whether there's a sense of you trying to obliterate the image. The images come to the fore and part of the process is a kind of burial. Well, I mean, yeah. which would be quite I mean, appropriate those, in this subject. Those figures, for instance, in the top left-hand corner of this painting um, were painted, uh, I can't remember which colour, but then a, a glaze of gold went over them. Right? Yes. So the Mystery to me, Ducky. I don't know how it all yeah. happens. But the figures were there first, so we're getting somewhere. Great. Um, the, not really, but the, the other thing about the scale, I think, of, of, of this work in particular, I mean, it's the scale of grand history painting. Um, I'm, I'm really not being reductive or glib because of Reynolds's idea that, or assertion that history painting was the most important form of art. But it is a contentious area now. I mean, I once asked Anselm Kiefer if he was a history painter, and he absolutely said absolutely not. But of course he is, and his subject matter is history per se, as well as individual history. But it has academic overtones that people feel uncomfortable with. How do you plead? I mean, this is a kind of contemporary history painting, isn't it? Well, if you like to call it that. I mean, I don't... 
I had not considered it a history painting. I mean, I just wanted the confrontation of that figure with a gun coming right out of the canvas at me and then at the person looking at it. I didn't think about history painting. It seems like a now painting to me. Yes. History seems in the past. This well, seems this like is, a now painting. Sure, but this is in the past. What's in the past? This painting. No, it isn't. It's in the present. It's in the Marlborough. Yeah. <laughs> but, it, but it was finished in the past. No, but you look at any painting. Of course. And it's, no, and no, it's, but it's that's now. The, but well, you look at a Matisse, you look at a Roscoe. It is now. Yes. And it will be in the future, but it is now, a, a, from a 2016 painting around emotions and uh, uh, events that took place in Aleppo. Um, I mean, I, I think the notion that painting is something that we all bring back to life in the most profound sense is, is there. And work that only seems like a document of an historical moment is limited. It's an historic document. So I think we agree, even though it seems actually we don't agree on when this was. But the, the, the other issue I guess I wanted you to wrestle with here is um, process and the subject matter. Is this any more violent a process um, than your normal way of painting? Because normal. obviously, well, the way you paint, sorry, is very expressive and visceral. And I think one of the things you get looking at the, this, because partly because of the discernible subject matter, partly because of its titling and because it's around the theme of the, the conflict and destruction in Aleppo, one, one tends to read, or I tend to read, the process itself as somehow echoing the violence. But then I'm conscious of the fact that often you work in a kind of viscerally expressive way that one might consider to be violent. I mean, how, how, how no, does no, that I mean, play out No, I mean, there's no difference between painting this Aleppo number three. We could move on to the next one if you feel like it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and painting a wave or painting a portrait. It's all the last Aleppo one, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That one, yeah. That's this. That one. Um, I mean, it's, it's all the same to me. Whatever I'm painting, it's the same. The same. Is, um, is painting gen generally a cathartic act for you? Do you feel purged when you've finished a painting? Purged. Emptied a little? Um, well, Henry Moore said it was all therapy. I completely agree with him. I mean, the reason I get up at five o'clock every morning is if I stayed in bed, I would just worry about everything, you know? So with great optimism, every morning I go into that studio very, very early rather than stay lying in bed worrying. And, you know, it's, it's optimistic every morning. Of course, by the end of the day, <laughs> one can be so riddled with doubt and the rest of it. But every morning, it's optimistic. Can I just say, you're not coming over as riddled with too much doubt tonight. It's obviously been quite a, a good day, but... Um, this now, can you go back to Aleppo 4, please? Because this actually is my favourite of the Aleppo paintings, if I'm allowed one. And it is, I mean, a sort of subtitle might be a homage to Rembrandt. OK, I, you can move on if you like. No, there's much to pick but, up But, I mean, on a lot that. of people... On, I, have, on, I have watched a couple of people... You know, I don't often go into, the, into my exhibition, but... I have been there a couple of times when people actually discover the child lying in the rubble and they take quite a time to discover it. I think that's good. I think that's very moving. And I think it is 
fairly clear to see in the flesh. It's more often difficult reproduction. But I'm not letting you get away. Rembrandt reference is interesting, if you call it homage to Rembrandt, because you often like to point out that Rembrandt said famously that every painting he did was a self-portrait of sorts. No. That his, the quote of Rembrandt that a friend told me some years ago, and whether it's true or not, I don't know, but I don't mind, the correct quote is that Rembrandt had said, if he did, I have painted nothing but portraits, not self-portraits, but portraits, meaning that the tiniest chicken coop in the tiniest etching is actually a particular chicken coop. You know, generalization is the worst enemy of art. Uh, it, that, by that little statement, whether he said it or not, uh, the, is, is it crucially important. You know, that the subject, even of a little chicken coop in an etching, was in charge of him, not the other way around. Interesting. So that's another artist's quote I got wrong, but it's a very interesting um, way of uh, approaching, I guess. Nonetheless, let me at least have the indulgence of the self in this. You're removed from the process, but obviously you're inextricably linked. You, you, you feel as if you're removed from it, but you're inextricably linked to it. Um, where is the self in works like this? Completely obliterated? Well, I'm no longer a child, Tim. You may have <laughs> spotted that. So it's in no way a self-portrait. Um, no, I don't say that. I don't mean it's a self-portrait. But it, you have a, um, a distinctive style. I wonder whether sometimes trying to escape the idea of the self or the touch or... Well, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think some sort of answer is that once the subject has chosen yeah. the artist then the subject must be in charge of everything the artist does. It's dangerous when it's the other way around. So the subject, like, I mean, if I was painting, were painting your portrait, right? Yes. So uh, I would have to empty myself for the truth of you to come through the floor of the studio and up through me and out onto the canvas so that you, as the subject, were in charge of me. Okay, and that, and that wonderful thing Brancusi said, that it isn't difficult to make a work of art, the difficulty lies in being in the right state to do it. I completely agree with that. I mean, being totally receptive to the subject. And how do you get yourself in that state, or is that an impossible thing to answer? Well, you don't drink too much the night, <laughs> the night before. We're coming up to a, a, a yes. self-portrait with a hangover. I, um, I think so we should... So you try and... Be fit and ready for the optimism of the morning. Yes. I'm going to move to that. We will come back, and I'm going to insist Good. that we go to the self-portrait oh, yes. hangover. Hangover. Hmm. So she said taking a sip of whiskey. Um, talk about the genesis of this. Um, um, well, I think I had a hangover dying. It can't be unknown to the people here, or even no, you. But, but it can't be unknown to you. I wonder why this particular moment, and this particular subject matter, or this particular scrutiny of the self, or, was it, or did the hangover somehow emerge later as, as, the, as the subject of the painting? Terribly difficult, your questions, Tim. All right, we'll start with where this began. I, what I'm hoping I is mean, an anecdote... I mean, you are seeing this about four times, times bigger, larger, yeah. bigger than the reality. I, it's not really a self-portrait as big as that. I'm much more modest than that. Um, and, of course, we've all had hangovers, and I was trying to paint the sort of... 
the kind of psychological depression of a hangover, how everything seems to be impossible, you wish you were dead, um, but you're still alive, but nothing seems possible, and nothing worthwhile, nothing worth living for. Yeah. <laughs> you get but, the picture? Yeah. Picture, yeah. But, but the, and the obliteration of the sense of, 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 of and a grasp on scent that you just want to literally bury yourself, but it's, in, it's the internalization that's interesting. I mean, I kind of am also angling for, I mean, you woke up with a stinking hangover, went into the studio and thought, okay, I'm going to start painting, or was, it, was, this, was there a more subtle evolution of this work suddenly moving into the, the description of the self I think hangover? Probably, probably I had a hangover and I went into the studio and, uh, and that's a real cigarette there. <laughs> People like the irony of a Marlborough cigarette hanging in the Marlborough gallery. <laughs> anyway. It's a conceptual gesture of... <laughs> High sophistication. Um, let, let's let's. And that's go. another self-portrait. I know of lungs. Yeah. Lungs. So another internalized self-portrait, externalized. Yeah, you're you're good at this. I couldn't have said that. Well, I wasn't myself. feeling particularly good, but anyway. Uh, I, yeah. I couldn't have said that better myself. Obviously, I don't know what my lungs look like. I do occasionally think about them, and feel a bit of fellow's suffering with them. But this painting just happened very, very quickly. I think it's a rather nice painting. I mean, you're seeing it much, much bigger. Again, like the self-portrait, it's only a quarter of the size you're seeing on the screen at the moment. But it's, it's a rather good paint, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, you've, you've made portraits, I mean, throughout your career. Um, but this is a particular group of portraits that are being presented, self and others. And we go back to Beethoven. Was this the first in the series that became a series? I can't remember. Okay. But Beethoven, Leonard Cohen, yourself. Um, so Beethoven is gilded, as is Leonard Cohen. Gold, idolization. Would be a way in for the viewer to look at it? Well, okay, I'll bring, the, bring things down to a mundane level. I've been told often in my life how much I look like Beethoven because of the curly hair, the intense eyes, and the bad temper. <laughs> okay? I can't think uh, where on earth anyone ever thought that, Maggie. I really, I really can't. <laughs> um, anyway, I mean, there aren't... You know you were talking about photographs earlier. There aren't any photographs of Beethoven, no. okay? He was before Sculptural photography. Busts, yes, so, so, so there are, um, you know, terrible Victorian... Uh, uh, paintings in which he always wears a red jacket and a frilly shirt and all that. Um, and obviously he's a genius um, and, he's, and he's dead, but because of his music, his music he's still alive, like any great artist. And um, I don't know, it's my idea of Beethoven. Do you, Does that um, answer your question? Yeah, I think so. Do you listen to music in the studio when you paint? Well, I mean, when I was making the War Requiem um, for Benjamin Britten, I listened a lot to the War Requiem. Um, when I was making a portrait of George, George Schulte, I listened to the piece of music that he was conducting. I did a portrait of him conducting. And I, no, only when it's relevant. It's never an abstract backdrop. No, no, no. It's, it's part of that process of connection. I don't have Muzak, no. Muzak, no, no. yeah. Well, it but I did once, I did paint the, the band of the Women's Royal Army Corps. <laughs> that was quite fun. Um, in Guildford, they had their ceremonial uniforms on. 
And it's absolutely true. I set up my easel and they were playing, you know, with their uniforms on and all that, playing. This. And at the beginning of this painting, I was going, and I thought, this is ridiculous. You can't paint like this. It's mad, you know. So I relaxed a bit on the second day and, and on we went. Yes, it was all, all right in the end. It's in the Imperial War Museum. That, that, is, that is... But I mean, it's only... Uh, what I'm trying to say is uh, only music when it's particular. No, no, look, and you paint a comic scene and there's a kind of notion of method painting, but actually it does relate to the connectedness that you're trying to make with your subject, uh, even though you have to escape the potential absurdity of a rhythmically painted painting of, um, <laughs> of, the, of the army band or Beethoven um, thus. But... Hamlet, this, this is interesting, isn't it, of course, because, you know, the play within a play, the fictional character that means so much, the scrutiny of the self and so on. Um, uh, was this a conscious depiction of an image of Hamlet in your mind, or did Hamlet start to take over as you started to paint? Well, it, it followed the, the paintings of victims in the uh, War Requiem um, installation. Uh, and... I was trying to paint the state of mind of Hamlet, who, of course, is in a terrible muddle. That's why he's every man. He's all of us and so great. And it's, uh, it's sort of ambiguous as to whether that's the sort of front view of him or the back view of him. I was just trying to paint that uncertainty that a lot of us feel a lot of the time. And Hamlet embodies... And then connected even to Hamlet, but not at all, is the painting Ghost which has a wonderful spectral quality, um, phantomagoric really as well, but at the same time, the image emerges strongly. Is, does this connect, this is self as well, potentially or not? No, well, I tell you the truth about this. It started off as Beethoven. <laughs> and then, and then moved to Hamlet. And then it looked more like me, then it went back to Beethoven, then it began to look like my mother, and then it went back to Beethoven for a bit, and finally it's ended up my mother. Okay. But I called it ghost because it's many, I think in the eloquent words of James Carthill, many has many identities. Yes, as we all do. Good words. And it sounds like a kind of, sort of psychoanalytic case study um, in the way that you describe it. <laughs> Hello, mother. <laughs> yep. Your relationship to your parents in paint is a deep and moving one. I mean, particularly, I, I mean, I... I, I the images of your father, the paintings of your father that you made. It's interesting that the ghost of your mother comes to haunt. Does your father still play that kind of potential role in your art or was there a kind of sense of closure when you'd finished those? He doesn't seem to appear as often as my mother. He might next week, who knows? And lie back and tell us why your mother is appearing more in your paintings now than your oh, father. Oh, my Gordon Bennett. Are you calling yourself Mr. Freud now, Tim? I don't know. Do you it's care? all very mysterious. I know that's it's an easy thing to say, but it's true. It's very mysterious when a thing happens. I mean, I don't know, about seven years ago, seven years ago, suddenly this this drawing from memory of my mother happened around Christmas time. She was very keen on Christmas, and we had to play charades solidly for three days. Um, and it sort of came from nowhere. I mean, I don't know where thing they come from. I think it's a thing of being in touch with, with your inner voice. Do you know what I mean? That's why, that's why I, I had uh, the words from Peter Grimes um, on Scallop, the sculpture on Albra Beach. You know, I hear those voices that will not be drowned because everybody has voices, voices inside them, and I thought that was a sort of universal thing. You know, 
And so I've never been any... I mean, she actually said I was the most obstinate child she'd ever come across, and she was a teacher, so she'd met quite a lot of children. And um, I wouldn't be any good at uh, sort of trotting out things that I was told to paint. I've never done that. I've never done that. I mean, I remember... My first show in London at Morley Gallery in 1973, I think. And uh, Geoffrey Solomons, who was a director at Fisher Fine Art at the time, came very early to the private view. And he stood in front of a very large painting of Lett Haynes. And there was me, a sort of baby artist, my first show. And uh, he said, well, if you do me 20 of these, we'll give you a show. And I said, well, why would I do 20 of those? That's that painting. I'm not going to do 20 more. Well, a lot of people would have, you see. But that, you know, the, the thing I got from Cedric Morris and Lett Haynes, that early, that art school that I went to at the age of 15, where Lucien Freud went many years before me. I mean, the, down, this, thing, this thing of being independent, you know? Independent. Did, did you know before you even went to art school at the age of 15 that that's what you wanted to be or do? Oh, yes. How old were you when you, you, that was clear to you? Oh, my God, you want that old thing. All right. Art exam at school when I was 14 did nothing but flick paint at people because I was deeply in love with the biology mistress invigilating the exam. Realised it was 20 past three and at half past three I had to hand in a painting, so I did one. When the results came out, I was top of art. You could also have been a racing. So I looked into it. I looked into it. You know what I mean? I thought this is interesting. You don't have to try and you're good at it. That's quite interesting. Does it get easier as you get older? Or do you have to no, make it more of course difficult? Not. Of course it gets more. I mean, because of course there's less and less time. And um, as I approach early middle age, even so. Maturity, I think, is the phrase time. you're looking for. And, no, no, no. Just because you're younger than me. Um, no, no, that wasn't glib. Maturity is what you're re re reaching. What was your question? You avoided it. It was about when you knew, when you, knew you wanted to be an artist, but it, I wanted to, set, to move on, to segue on, because you, you're, you've been very engaging and candid, but at the same time, you have every right to put up barriers about you know, what personally is revealed in your paintings, and I know you will. But do you find out certain things about yourself when works have been finished and you're able to look at them? I mean, it could be weeks or days or months later. Are there elements of revelation in the painting that, that you don't want to share, but they're there for you? All right, all right. I think you're talking maybe about seminal works. You see, that's a very good word, a seminal work. I really think that the jolly old scallop on Albra Beach began when I was seven and saw the fireworks for the coronation those of you who can do arithmetic, where I was seven, coronation, fireworks all were reached up in the sky, on over the sea, fantastic. I mean, I think that Scollop probably began there, do you know? And then, I don't know if you saw, saw the show at the British Museum, but there's, you know, the sculpture of Henrietta eating a meringue. Well, that was 2001, and I began to paint the North Sea in 2002. But, I mean, all that movement going through that sculpture of Henrietta eating the meringue is exactly the movement that I try to get in my sea paintings. But you only see those things afterwards. The sea. Do you want to stop at Leonard Cohen, or should we, with time pressing... Well, there's should nothing we wrong with Leonard Cohen. Leonard Cohen's look at Leonard Cohen. Marvellous. And the most gilded, but in some ways the most elusive, the most fluid. Um, he has the most distinctive voice, but I wasn't sure if that was what was being expressed here. No, it's, it, I, it, what, it is an attempt to paint uh, the sound of his voice. 
and his poetry, I suppose, and uh, I was very moved when he died, so, as usual. It's a kind of elegy, then, to... Yeah, yeah, a celebration of him, yeah. But we missed out 2016, which is a very important we page. We did, um, this one. which is the, yes, we did. No, um, don't go there. No, okay. 2016 is the painting of the refugee... Well, I think you'd say the image is the boat, and we can't get away from the notion of the refugee crisis, which I think is the trigger for this, isn't it? Certainly how I read it. It's, again, it's a much bigger painting in reality in the show than it is on this screen. And my uh, rather boring title for it was Trafficker Boat Drifting. And then young James Carhill, who wrote the um, catalogue introduction, said, I really think you should call that 2016 because um, it has the whole uncertainty of last year about it, you know, with, with Trump and Brexit and no, none of us really knowing what's happening at all. It's a sort of bigger thing going on in this painting than a, a refugee boat, a trafficker boat drifting. I mean, it, did, it went on for a long while, this painting. I mean, at first there were all, a lot of little figures in the boat and then they gradually went. So it's supposed to be that moment when the boat is about to go down, yeah. and I'm quite pleased with the sort of movement and the light on the surface of the water and the sort of dark bit that's happening. No, it has this push-pull as well as this sense mm. of moving across. Um, sorry to push on, but I know yes, you, yes. Want, you want to get through the images um, uh, uh, ah. to complete the show. So now we've moved on to um, the final painting series, Edge, which is um, interesting that you've finish the drink because there's a James has a um, uh, an analogy from Henry Miller which I, as I said to you earlier I thought I knew Miller well but I didn't know this analogy where he talks about waking up as something akin to ice melting it's quite a nice idea M maybe relates to hangover as well but this has a literal dimension of the edge of the ice caps the melting and you've talked about this also in terms of environmentalism and your anger well, I think we're fucking up the planet, basically. And, I mean, the, these ice cap melting paintings began after the wall of water paintings that were in the National Gallery, where, where those enormous waves were challenging the little man-made sea wall and these vast waves. So it's nature challenging this little man-made thing. But this, so this is the reverse. I mean, here is man challenging nature, and I think in a, think in a very dangerous and criminal way, and it, uh, I get angry about it, and that's what started this, this series of these ice caps melting, and this was the first one. And it's very difficult to see on this, because it's got a black background. You can't actually see the two black edges, which is the name of the show, and, and they all started in this painting, the black edges. I don't know if you can just define, define or see the black edge of the painting, which, which just happened, yeah, 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 just happened, but then uh, you can see it as a, like old-fashioned film, you know, which had those black edges as it rolled around and around, and then and funeral cards with black edges. I don't know if people still have them, but, but uh, and, and formally, formally, um, when you can see the black edges when you're in front of the actual painting, your eye goes out to the edges and then out to the edges and then back into the centre where it's all happening. So it, it works quite well because I think a lot of painting is, you know, keeping the eye on the move throughout the thing, keeping the eye on the move. 
And so... Yes, it makes looking a dynamic experience. It makes the whole process of the painting itself more fluid. Shall we move on? Next yeah, no, but, but I was going to say Sorry. exactly moving on because this is a work where the edge becomes... I mean, it, it's even more acute... One's even more acutely aware of it because it's a, it feels like a... Not a crop... Well, it is a crop, but it feels like you're looking through something very taut and tightly framed. Well, that's about half the size it is in reality, isn't it? Well, this is more... In that first one, I feel it's sort of like full of action, action of the ice-melting action. Um, and this is more of a lament. I don't know, this is, seems to be more of a lament. Yes. But... Next. Okay. Yeah, this is probably the most beautiful of them. This is edge number three. This is an elegy for lost... potential lost beauty, then. Well, I just think it's probably the most beautiful painting. And you really, you cannot, well, here are the black edges which you can't see. And it was really this painting, I think, James, wasn't it? This painting that gave the title of Edge and then calling the whole show Edge. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really do think you feel as if it's happening in front of you in that painting. How long did the, were the you talked about some of the Aleppo paintings being very quick. How long are these? Because looking at the kind of layering and so on and thinking about drying processes and the fluidity and liquidity, how long do they take? Well, again, it's, uh, there's no rule, but this painting went on for a pretty long while, yes, and uh, turning it upside down to get the drips to go in various directions mm -hmm. and then, as you say, layers. Thank God you didn't say texture. <laughs> you know, yeah. that word texture. A couple of people have... Uh, yeah, texture, darling, as if they're talking about velvet or Harris Tweed or something. I mean, layers is the right word. Layers of failure, which build up and build up and build up until finally they don't fail. <laughs> yeah. And we presume that because of the durational time, I mean, the time needed to work on when oil, that you're working simultaneously on at least two. How many... Do you recall? Are you working on at the same time? Or you really do focus one after the next after the next? No, no, no. There's sometimes two or three going on at the same time and then you sort of suddenly see something two months later and you do something to the painting or a year later and you do something to the painting. I mean, the, the show is about... Uh, goes back over three years. But so often there's portraiture in the same... You're working on portraiture, then you'll be working on the edge, then you may even oh, yeah. work on the Aleppo. Whatever. Yeah. yeah. Whatever. In the same day? Whatever. Whatever. No, I'm not asking a question now. You're going to pick up. <laughs> no, I've said all I have to say about <laughs> the, way, the way we're fucking up the planet. This is what, edge four? It, yeah, interesting. <laughs> the, <laughs> that the notion of finish is quite interesting in this one because it's, um, it is very resolved, but at the same time, it isn't as... Uh, extensively worked, is it, or as layered as the others? But again, this is the this is the process saying, "Yep." Uh, well, no, I no, mean, I did start off with I, I did paint the canvas the red uh, ground, yeah. a red ground, you know that that oxide red to say the heat, because I'm sure everyone knows the heat is coming from under the sea as well as from on top. And so I did paint, it was an experiment. I mean, painted the canvas red first and uh, then worked on it. And I think it's the first time the edges don't actually go down to the bottom of the, bottom of the canvas. 
Want anybody else to say about it, really? No, well, the heat side, I mean, it's, it isn't, it, it's, I don't think it's a literal painting, but the sense of something melting from the heat beneath is quite acute, isn't it, you would say? Good. Great. Even. And then, finally... Well, that's another edge painting. That's the most recent of them, yes. And although you've said with other series you don't know whether you're going to continue, this has a kind of sense of something working its way through. Does this feel like the finale? No, but don't ask me that. I'm not a fortune teller. I mean, I paint what moves me in life. When people say, what are you going to be painting in six months? I say, I don't know. Depends what happens. Has everyone spotted the polar bear? There. <laughs> Poor little polar bear. Have nowhere to uh, live. Which is interesting, because the scale of them is sometimes wonderfully indeterminate. I mean, it's microcosmic, macrocosmic, these works. I think so, yeah. Oh, that's good. Sometimes then. I don't know if I'm looking at a vast landscape. Sometimes I don't know if I'm looking very close up at something. There's, that's obviously, um, whether it's intentional or not, it's a very effective device. It sort of makes the, the process more dynamic. But, of course, the polar bear does give a total scale to the work, doesn't it? And it makes you smile. Well, I was quite pleased. Oh, there's there a detail yeah, 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 of the yeah, yeah. polar bears. It's sweet. No, no, but I mean, I do think paintings should work from, you know, that wall over there to here, and they should work with your nose on top of them. They should have, you know, they should work from all distances if they've got any life to them. Now, we're going to finish on the sculpture series. Yeah. Which, I think they're editions, I mean, they're bronze cast, they're editions, but each of them is singular, because you, you work each and every surface. Um, the, this one's called Survivor. Um, there's a, as I say, there's a whole series, and it, the found object is the trigger for the series. Yeah, well, I mean, certain of these pieces of wood I've had for many years and wondered what I might do with them, and then quite suddenly, um, this aftermath series of sculptures started with some of those first bits of wood that I'd had for a very long while, and obviously I can... I can adapt the wood, I can carve into it, I can add bits, I can subtract bits. Uh, but if a piece of wood ha seems to have a sort of presence and uh, suggests something, and I try to bring out that presence, I mean, and, it, and part of it is, uh, you know, the gargoyles on churches that have sort of worn away and that sort of thing, you know, and, and the way we all look at some ancient bit of stone in the British Museum and look at it for ages, I don't know what we think about it, but, you know, the, those found things, yes. And these are bits of wood that have sort of spoken to me, if you like. Yeah, the sense of time passing and of histories there, but also of the found image, you know, that within the found object, it, it's as if the, there's also the found image that one sees. That you seem to, you seem to suggest that you work towards that a little when you carve or amend the wood, but a lot of it's already there. The potential is already there. Mm -hmm. So some of these sculptures you do a certain amount to, and others, it's almost the wood in the state that it was found. Yeah. Beautiful texture, by the way. Um, <laughs> That's called humongous. I know it is, yeah, I couldn't say it from... Homunculus. Uh, yeah, humunculus, yeah, homunculus, um, which in itself has this, uh, the notion that the material has this kind of haunting quality or that something emerges from it is there. But you... you I mean, that flat, okay, that flat bit of wood, the grey, if you like, 
I'd had for a long while. And I added the bit at the bottom so it would stand up. And I think that little face that you see coming out of the piece of wood, the homunculus, I suppose, um, was actually a piece of fungus off a tree in the original. I mean, but you can't tell how long a fungus will last, even with plaster and the rest. And so that's why they have to be cast in bronze, because then they'll last. And then I hand paint the bronze. You Which some people think is very vulgar, because bronze is so perfect and beautiful and pure and should not be touched. Well, I mean, there are plenty of painted bronzes in the Renaissance. Yeah, I wasn't going to throw that accusation at you, but I was interested that um, the, the different processes as they're perceived between sculpture and painting, obviously, they're often blurred with you, that you sometimes mm. approach paint in a sculptural way and you're approaching sculptural material in the end in a painterly way at the end, although you're playing with it as a material. And it seems to me that although we distinguish quite strongly when we go to a show of yours between the three-dimensional sculptural objects and paintings, there's an obvious connection, it seems to me, um, not just the fact it's you, but in the way that you approach the materials. You nod. That's called oil spill. And? <laughs> it's a piece of sculpture called oil spill. And the title came at the very end? Or as you were looking at that piece of wood, you thought, yes. No, it's, I mean, it's a pretty desperate little bird. <laughs> you know, that's uh, about to die. Next. Yeah, on the beach. Oh, yes. Cull. Yeah. That does refer to culling of badgers. And this is atrophied bird. Yes, that's a, that's a, a bird uh, sort of found uh, on the, uh, maybe on the last bit of an ice cap. And <laughs> it's sort of been frozen to death or something. I'd love to have to share an image with you now. It has no relationship to your process, but the, the great Tondo, the Tadeo Tondo that the, the Academy owns, that is now lent for the first time in a long time to another institution. It was virtually hand-carried down to the National Gallery because it's in a very... I mean, it is a delicate object, a very delicate, delicate object. But it's been behind thick glass for 20 years, which has a kind of green hue because it needs to be bulletproof and axe-proof and whatever, and that was the technological state of glass when it was put on. And it was taken off recently, and we saw it in daylight. And then I managed to climb up onto the scaffolding to look at it very close up, which one hasn't been able to do. And what's interesting is the bird that is being that, that Michelangelo produces, which is in a very uh, a sort of not not a pri primitive state of becoming, but it's 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 more stone than bird, and then it becomes bird. As you get closer to it, this sense of this thing emerging is really acute. And when you and then sometimes you lose the image with the naked eye, but then when you put a digital camera on it and photograph it, the camera fixes the image and then it, it fixes as a bird. And I was struck when I looked at this particular That's work nice. of, that, of that little sense of something coming and, dis and going and emerging and disappearing. Thank you. He's not bad, Michelangelo. Thank He's you. not bad, and I'm not making that direct comparison, but... Yeah, yeah hung... The, 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 I mean, people, hunger. It's called hunger. Yeah, pe people hearing you talk as well as seeing your work will know that you have a sense, sense of the absurd and a kind of comic sense or a sense of humour. And that this has. Thank the Lord. Yes, exactly. And this did have that kind of. What hunger? Quality. Yeah, I thought so. You know, that made you laugh. Did it? You're supposed to be yes. a desperate person, absolutely dying of hunger. 
That's a failure. Yeah. I'll take it out of the exhibition. You're right. Sleeper. Yeah, I'd had that piece of wood for years and years. I only added that piece underneath to make that head be at the right angle. And I just encouraged the, the, the mouth that was already there. I just encouraged it a bit with a chisel or something. I mean, that is one, apart from the bit at the bottom, to make it the right angle, that's one extraordinary bit of wood that I've had for many years. I like the, the title Sleeper because, I mean, it's the, the sleeping image, but I like the idea that you've said it's a piece of wood you've had around for ages. So it's a kind of sleeper, isn't it? I mean, something that you've pushed to one side, you know it has some kind of value. Um, it, do, you, do you forage, I mean, do you go on foraging trips explicitly or are these things that just you encounter in all sorts of places and ways and you've got a studio filled with these possibilities that at some oh, stage may have... all kinds of bits of wood, half of which, yeah, you know, yeah. I burn because they're no good. But, I mean, all over the place. I mean, partic particularly in Suffolk, you, d you don't find many of these lying around Piccadilly. <laughs> you should look harder. Final, the final image. Now, obviously, this is not a day for politics, um, but Maggie has been an explicitly uh, open supporter of Brexit, and we have had arguments about it, and this is called politician. So would you like to apologise, or would you like to talk about um, how this relates to the contemporary state of affairs, or has nothing to do with any of that, um, but it somehow is how you feel or we feel about our contemporary political establishment? Well, it is actually hollow, and I, made it, I made, and I made it two years ago, and everybody thinks it's Trump, and that's before Trump, if you see what I mean. People think it's a portrait of Trump, but I think that's largely to do with the colouring. Yes. But it was my idea of a politician, you know, looking a bit sad and tired and still spouting hot air and getting a bit saggy and actually hollow. Does that answer your question? Beautifully. Evasive and answers the question in a different way, yeah. So, ten minutes. And I would never have voted Brexit if for a moment I thought it would happen. <laughs> like many... Uh, no, honestly, like many other people, it were, I just was making a protest against being told what to do by Europe all the time. I, that Friday morning was very frightening indeed, and it still is. We'll take that as an apology. Thank you. No, it's no apology. <laughs> now, ten minutes, and... You, you come on. You can do better than me. Um, who would I mean? I'm going to happily talk for another ten minutes with Maggie. But um, who would like to ask? Who would? Who dares ask a question from the floor? Um, what is it that makes you anxious in the morning that propels you to paint? Oh my God! I'm a therapist. So, yeah. it, You're a what? Therapist. Can I? Can I book? It, can I book a session with you after this evening? To be honest, it would be really helpful. Thank you. I don't know. It's different things every morning. Of course, different things every morning one worries about, don't you find yourself, as a therapist. So, I, as I've said, you know, I quoted Henry Moore, who said the whole thing was therapy. I go into that studio and it sorts it out. OK, therapist? Yeah, it's a... Sorry, can I just carry... It's a very good question, Maggie. Can, Is it? Uh, yeah, I'm going to ask. Will you answer it? Uh, no, I'm going to ask the supplement in a minute. And and then you said when you'd finished your work in the evening, you were left with doubt. Oh yeah, so, I mean, it's such a funny business. You can, you know, before the first glass of whiskey, you can feel that you've done quite a good day's work, and you look at it the next morning, it's pure shit. <laughs> and then you think you've done a really bad day's work, and you look at it the next morning, it's sort of all right. So you know, you could never tell. And I, I do, of course, have doubt the whole time as to what I'm doing, why I'm doing it. 
But I, you know, I think that's a necessary part of life. Has there ever been a sustained period in your career where you've just not been able to face going to the studio? I mean, for a long yes. period of time. Um, I think three weeks when I gave up smoking. And I really thought I'd never paint again. And I lay in bed watching television, um, asking people to bring me muesli bars. <laughs> so I got quite plump. And then I gradually went into the studio for half an hour, and then, you know, then an hour, and then it all started up again. But I really did think for about three weeks I'd never work again without a cigarette. And then the ice melted, as it were. And then you went. I don't know how I've got through this evening without a cigarette, actually. I've done bloody well. <laughs> yeah, up to a point. You went out onto the balcony in the friends' room and were chuffing I mean, away before here. we came here. It's, it's only an hour ago. The notion of denial for hours and hours. Um, anyway, thank you. Another question? Before we all go for a well-earned cigarette or drink? Um, there's, there is a... Uh, no more questions. They've all gone to sleep. No, there's, no. We'll, we'll have a, a final one. Do, do you, um, you, you... You're talking about not knowing when, when ideas or um, themes or images will reappear or when they're finished or whatever. But is there a sense... And do you have a sense a long time out about the next series or series that you're going to work on? I no, mean, I've said that so often. No, but even, so now, often. even now, there's nothing in your mind... So what are you working on right now? I'm doing one or two more edge pictures, actually. Actually. I've had one or two goes making a portrait of John Berger since he died, but they haven't worked uh, yet. Um, and I've got an Aleppo on the go. Yeah, several things on the go. Well, it's very dangerous to talk about what you're doing at the time. I no, noticed, I understand that. I yeah. mean, I notice when a photographer or somebody comes to the studio, and if they photograph something that's only half there, in I mean, I turn things I'm working on now to the wall, because I, you know, in the past, a, a painting that's half done on the wall and it gets photographed, and it never works. It never works. So it's, it's even dangerous talking about what one's doing. You mean, sorry, that's really interesting. You mean that when, if someone photographs something halfway through, and you then see the photograph of that state, that almost, that almost puts a block on it. Well, I don't even have to see the photograph. I just, it's some feeling yeah. that the, the thing is no longer alive for me, because it's been photographed. It's crazy, I know, but that's all right. Um, so now, if a, a photographer comes to the studio, I turn things to the wall that I'm working on, so there's no danger of them being photographed. Looking at these slides up here, I just want to tell everybody in this room, just in case you haven't been to see the exhibition itself, mm. how absolutely marvellous the show is and that you really cannot judge paintings mm. through slides or through reproductions on screens and your show is incredibly visceral, suggestive, open and marvellous. May I say Well, that? thank you, Norman. <laughs> thank Which, you. Which, which would be a perfect note on which to end it, but I'd still like you to have your question. <laughs> I was just wondering what you thought about um, people creating theories or um, critiquing your art and what you thought about their sort of reactions. Are you talking about critics? Yeah, just your, your reaction to people's kind of layering on art, 
guff onto not necessarily art guff, but you know, artistic. That was so about. sweet. You looked at me then, not Sorry. necessarily. I mean, yeah, thank you. He's all right. <laughs> no, no. I mean, Oscar Wilde said the wonderful thing: when the critics are divided, the artist is at one with himself. That's pretty good. And the actor Donald Wolfitt, when he got a good notice for a piece in the theatre. He got a good notice, he said, what an intelligent person. And he got a bad notice, he said, written by one of my enemies. <laughs> you see, all that matters is column inches. Yeah, and time spent talking, which is always incredibly engaging with you. Norman said everything that needs to be said. I mean, the exhibition is still on till the 13th of April. And in the flesh, it's, um, it is a completely different and, and wonderful experience. Um, do feel free to submit for the summer exhibition at any time, Maggie. I'm sure that's what we can do. And um, we, we, we look forward to washing more dirty laundry and building bridges in the future. Um, but anyway, on that note, thank you all for coming, and in particular to Maggie Hamlin for being so wonderful. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.